All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 27th day of July 2017. Uh, I'd like to remind you each week that I am the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. I'd also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's newsletter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? You can go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. He has had a remarkable track record, and uh, you might want to consider subscribing to Chen. And uh, frankly, things are going pretty well for yours truly now, too. With the gold exploration stocks, I am extremely excited about a number of the sponsors that we have on our show, and uh, we'll be talking to more and more of them over the next few weeks. Well, we do want to welcome one new sponsor this week, uh, Firewood Zinc. Uh, it, we'll be talking to the CEO of that company, um, that's Brandon McDonald, in about a, well, about a quarter past the hour. Uh, they're advancing a zinc-lead-silver project forward that's up in the Yukon. But it's a very advanced project with lots of resources already, and uh, I think a stock that's selling at just a minuscule market cap, I think, has a great deal of upside potential, so you may want to be sure to hear what Brandon has to say. I do want to thank the other sponsors that we have for today's show. They are New Range Gold Corp., Telson Resources, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., and GMV Minerals Corp. I've uh, titled today's show, America's Decline, the Dollar and Gold. William Engdell will be with us. Michael Oliver will be speaking with you in just a couple of minutes. And uh, Brandon McDonald, as I said, will be with us about a quarter past the hour. The, the deep state and its propaganda programs deprive Americans of knowing the actual reasons we are asked to give our lives and treasury in funding unending foreign wars. Enabling the U.S. empire to expand and dominate after World War II was the forced acceptance of a post-1971 dollar, what I call the fraudulent dollar, orchestrated by the deep state that pulled the strings on our President Richard Nixon. By detaching gold from the dollar, America could print endless amounts of intrinsically worthless money out of thin air and use it to fund a military that punished any leader who refused to accept dollar payments for its oil and other goods that it cared to sell internationally. But now, some of the larger remaining powers in the world, like Russia and China, its allies, who have sought, in many ways, at least for now, a peaceful economic coexistence with Washington, are saying that they will not submit to Washington's bullying tactics any longer. They are seeking a peaceful coexistence with the West, at least they have sought, uh, 
perhaps because of weakness, they have no other choice, uh, and seeking actually to expand their economies in that way. But now, our neocons have apparently taken control, I believe, of the Trump administration. There's growing signs that that's the case. I'm not surprised, but that seems to be at least my read of it. Just as they have other presidents and um, the recent warnings that Syria will soon be uh, launching another Syrian gas attack, how do we know that? Well, well, maybe it's not Syria that's launching the Syrian gas attack. We'll see, but there are certainly a lot of skeptics about previous uh, false flags. Many people think they have been in the past and just an excuse to go to war. I mean, our military-industrial complex needs to have wars. That's how they fund themselves. That's how they get wealthy. That's It's a growing monstrosity that Eisenhower warned us about many decades ago, and now I'm quite convinced that it is uh, pretty much a very powerful force uh, in the geopolitical realm. Well, there are very few people in America who, I believe, who understand the other side of this rising conflict between the East and the West. New York University professor Cohen is certainly one who understands Russia and, and sees it in a little different way than our mainstream media projects it. Uh, but my main guest today, F. William Engdahl, who was born in Texas, uh, American, but now resides in Germany, is a knowledgeable, I think is knowledgeable, and balanced in his worldview as anyone I know. And he is extremely knowledgeable about how the East is using economic means to try to stand up against a, a growing uh, United States force, uh, an Anglo-American empire, if you will. While it may seem as though the U.S. can use its military might to force rulers like Saddam Hussein or Omar Gaddafi uh, out of power if they choose to accept currencies other than the dollars, um, the problem is that the United States has problems of its own, a cancer, if you will, that is growing because of a, an illegitimate monetary system. And so the, uh, there is a, a tide against the dollar. The foreign powers are resisting it, are using their own currencies and gold, in fact, for trade amongst themselves. And uh, the dollar is, uh, uh, is one that many of us have thought would come under uh, extreme uh, weakness in time. And certainly um, that's been the views of Michael Oliver. And uh, he is with us right now. Michael, thanks for joining me again today. Good to be back, Jay. Speaking of the dollar, uh, just as we were ready to come on the show, I noticed that it was, was down one full point. Uh, it was right before the show, about 96, uh, 0.96 or 96.15. Um, this was on Mario Draghi, apparently made some hawkish remarks um, and uh, drove the euro higher. And I know that you've been believing that the euro is entering a bull market, the dollar, a bear market. So what do you make of today's move in the dollar? Or is this... Is this thing going to get? Is the dollar going to get really weak? Do you think uh, in the near well, term? I think so. And, but every trend has layers, and I, I suspect there are layers here. Um, <clears throat> I got a lot of my subscribers who read obviously other market letters and so forth. Uh, sent me a lot of emails the last few weeks saying a bunch of the analysts out there expecting a strong dollar rally. And so last weekend's report, we ran a study on the dollar, and I uh, oh, it was two weekends ago, and I said no. Uh, They've already had four weeks of uh, on our oscillators of rally. They got two more at best. We're now in that second week, and I said I don't think they're going to probably get up over 98 or so. I don't even think they reach 98. And now in the 96s, it just looked like a. It's not the appropriate place if I were a dollar rally guy, looking for even a counter trend rally, counter to the new bear market, which I, I mm-hmm. think it is. Uh, this 96 and 87 level is not it. You might try 95 to get a little foothold. 
real support for the dollar right now is down there. It's around 88. Wow. Uh, well, that's, you know, another eight points lower on a 96-point index. Well, you do the percentages, and for the dollar, that's a big move. Uh, and so I think that's where the next major support is, and I don't think it'll ultimately hold, but I think it's a place where there could be some fight. Uh, it's around 88. Well, that's, that's a long way down. And uh, on the euro, which is a 113 area, <clears throat> I think if you ever touch 116, they're going to get very excited, the price charters. And I think you could run it up into the 120s without much mm. trouble. So that would be commensurate with the dollar drop in the 90 to 88. Uh, now, at that point, that finally, these, these two currencies have come off dead center. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they've been dull as uh, pond water for two yeah. years, really. Uh, and and mm. finally, they've come off dead center. And I think it'll have repercussions. I think it will help commodities. Uh, I think it'll hurt certain other assets, uh, like government debt, U.S. government debt, T-bonds. Um, and especially one thing I'm looking for for the commodities to help them, it's, it's you know, asset class shifts. You know, mm-hmm. we all know that the central banks print money, and it creates rivers of liquidity. Okay, well, that's one thing. But it always doesn't go, it doesn't always go where they want it to go. Bernanke wanted it to go into stocks from 2011 to 14, and he got his wish. And went mm-hmm. in the stocks and priced them off the page, places they would not otherwise have been, quote, unquote. Uh, so we know that's a goal, but ultimately that never persists. It gets to a point where the market says, uh-uh, you're just not going to get your wish anymore. We're going to put it somewhere else. And that's a decision made by you know millions of investors, smart investors, stupid investors, big investors, small investors, who shift their preferences. And I strongly suspect that if we get a good sharp wobble in the S&P, the kind that most people would call a, quote, correction, call it 5 or 10%, uh-huh. I think you're going to get a lot of money from smart people uh, who say, okay, I've had enough of this. Uh, this thing is really vastly overpriced. We've priced in some kind of uh, nirvana based on Trump on top of four years of central bank pricing of stocks upward. I mean, this thing's priced on top of itself four times. Uh-huh. And I think smart money is going to say, where do I go? And if you look at commodities just on a simple price basis historically, like uh, sugar or cocoa or uh, uh, orange juice, whatever, they're all at very low levels relative to the last decade, particularly if you price in some monetary inflation. So I think they're going to see value there. And I think some of the money is just going to say, I'm out of stocks. I'm going to have 20% of my portfolio that's going into commodities here, mm-hmm. there, and everywhere. And I think that that will show up as well. So I think it's both... The dollar drop will help commodities, and two, a first sharp wobble in the stocks, I think, will benefit commodities. Simply mm-hmm. the asset preference is changing. And, right. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it certainly wouldn't take a lot of money coming out of the, uh, the gigantic equity and debt markets, especially, oh, uh, yeah. to, uh, uh, to drive commodity prices uh, very much higher than they are now, I would think. I, I agree, absolutely. It's a small, yeah. small arena compared to those other ones. Yes. Right. Well, uh, with a minute or two left here, uh, speaking of debt, the T-bonds looking very weak as well. You've uh, pronounced a bear market for T-bonds, a bear market for the dollar, a bull market for gold and commodities in general. As you say, the equity market seems to be teetering, sort of an arm wrestling engagement there. But uh, the T-bond in a new bear market, you said, a substantial Mm -hmm. one, I believe. Um, you still, how's that looking to you now, and where might we well, be looking we got for the T-bond? On T-bond futures at 166 last October. They dropped mm-hmm. to 147 by March. They've had a rally back up to 157. We think maybe they'll see 158 despite today's wobble before mm-hmm. they peter out to this rally, which is rather extended time-wise. And it's the next leg down that we're trying to time. 
uh, you know, they've had a lot of dips in this rally that haven't taken hold, and we didn't expect them to, but there will be one soon, I think, in the next several weeks probably, that does take hold, and the T-bonds will then roll over for a whole new leg to the downside. Uh, and we suspect they could go into the high 120s on the T-bond futures. Well, uh, in a yield convert that to yields, that's four and a quarter percent yield. So mm. substantial rise in long rates. It's more than a doubling from the lows they saw last July, July 2016. Um, so we're looking for that next rollover in T-bonds, the next leg down in the bear market. And we suspect it'll start sometime in the next month, few weeks. All right. All right. For people who think that higher rates mean the death knell for commodities, for gold and things like that, what do you say to them? Uh, no, I mean, go back to your history. Uh, higher mm-hmm. rates can also mean, you know, inflation or, or uh, the popular conception of inflation, excuse me, which is rising commodity prices. Uh, right. We always have inflation. I mean, you know, when you, when you double the money supply every decade, effectively, right. uh, you've got pricing of this asset or that asset higher than it otherwise would be. It doesn't have to be rising to be inflated. Because, you know, after all, a certain asset might be lower than it is presently, except for the inflation. So uh, yeah. most people misinterpret that. But uh, the popular conception of inflation could well come back, and I think that would be the uh, rapid ascension of low-price commodities. Uh, and, 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 you know, when a market is way below water level and finally comes out, it's like a beach ball underwater, uh, the first move can often be very dramatic percent-wise, just to get back yeah. to sort of equilibrium. Right, uh, a, right. A whoosh effect. And I think we're the whoosh effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, I, I think it all bodes well for um, uh, for our next guest who's coming on. Uh, Brandon McDonald is going to be with us right after the commercial break. Michael, um, certainly he's uh, they're they're looking for zinc and lead and silver. Uh, they're not only looking for it; they've got a great, uh, considerable resource already. Uh, but I would think the, they ought to, the timing ought to be pretty good for folks that are I that are starting to produce those metals, right? Yes, I fully yeah. agree. Fully agree. All right. Thank you, Michael, for being with us. Um, We uh, do have to go to break now, and I look to talk to you next week. Well, folks, uh, break time. When we come back, we'll be with Brandon McDonald. Uh, You won't want to miss what he has to say. Firewood, uh, fireweed, zinc. We'll be right back. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold and over 8 grams per ton. Foreign is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Telson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me for the first time Brandon McDonald. He's the CEO and he's a, a director of a sponsor company to the show, uh, namely Fireweed Zinc. Uh, Brandon is a professional geologist. He has over 20 years of experience in the mining industry and uh, diverse uh, base, uh, including exploration geology worldwide. Investment banking, too. That's uh, always good in the city of London, where he worked uh, in structuring project financings and investments at Macquarie Bank uh, after graduating with an MBA from Oxford University in 2007. Brandon has a long history of mining exploration work in the Yukon, including zinc projects, and uh, he originally hails from the town of Ross River. That's very near the Tom Jason project that is the uh, subject uh, and the flagship proj- project, really, of, uh, as I understand it, of firewood zinc. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show, Jay. Really good to have you. Um, before we get started, I should mention uh, that your stock trades in Toronto under the symbol FWZ, 17.5 million shares outstanding, uh, around 85 cents earlier today when I checked it in Canada, gives it a market cap of only around 15 million uh, in Canadian dollars, 11 million U.S. dollars, despite a pretty substantial resource already established there. I should also mention to my listeners, it's fireweedzinc.com, fireweedzinc.com. New website put up there, and it's uh, quite informative and very attractive. Uh, so, well, uh, Brandon, uh, your flagship project uh, is the Mac- what is known as, I guess, named the Macmillan Pass Zinc Lead Silver Project in the Yukon. Aside from a, a pretty high-grade historical zinc, lead, silver resource from the uh, from that project from two deposits, what attracted you to uh, to this project? Uh, I would say initially, you know, it was a few years ago that our team, uh, well, it was more than a few years ago, that we saw the crunch in zinc coming. Uh, you know, the writing was on the wall in terms of the shutting of the Century Mine in Australia, Lachine in Ireland, and and. Um, constraints on supply in China while, while there's sort of global rising demand, and, and we really wanted to get a zinc asset. Um, when, when I was originally approached about this one, I, I immediately was really excited because, um, first off, it's, it's right near my hometown, uh-huh. um, but also because, you know, the Tom and Jason deposits are, are a bit storied, and, you know, the, the Tom deposit um, is, the, is the deposit for which the term SEDEX or sedimentary exhalative was actually coined. It was coined in a mm-hmm. master's thesis about 40 years ago. And when, when you're studying this style of deposit, it's actually the rocks you look at in the UBC, you know, labs, you know, the university mm-hmm. I did my undergrad at. So it, it was already something I was familiar with, and I was excited about it. And, and then you add in, you know, the Yukon, which is such an excellent jurisdiction for mining, and you have excellent support there from from the federal government down to the territorial government, and even right down to the local community government with our, our partners in the um, Ross River uh, Denna Council there. Um, it was just, a, you know, groups that we wanted to work with, we knew we could work with, and that, that are commercial and, and want the mining. You know, you're not bashing your head up against a bad jurisdiction mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. And also another big deal is, uh, I guess, 
to a great extent, you have more infrastructure probably in the Yukon than you had decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've seen with the sort of infrastructure funds coming from the feds and, and contributed by the territorial government that they have a willingness to develop infrastructure for uh, mineral projects that are going to contribute to the economics of the territory. Um, so, you know, we have a, a government road to our project, which is on their radar to upgrade further um, because, you know, they, they know that this can contribute meaningfully to the, to the territory and to the local mm-hmm. communities. Well, tell us a little bit about your project. I mean, you, you have a meaningful resource there already. Uh, you are opt- it's an option from HUD Bay. Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you have there and what you hope to accomplish this summer with your, uh, with your project, with your work uh, project. Sure. Um, you know, the, the resource, as you said, already pretty substantial at about 6.5 million tons indicated and 24.5 uh, or so uh, inferred um, at grades, you know, ranging between, uh, I think, about 10.5, think equivalent on the inferred, and uh, 11.5, I think, equivalent on the indicated. You know, this mm. is a very sizable and, and rich deposit for zinc. Um, and in fact, in terms of zinc contained, it's already in the top 10 undeveloped resources in the Americas. Um, so we were already buying a project that is is substantial, um, but what really you know attracted us was that it's really still underexplored. The previous groups here, you know, the last exploration there was done in in ninety one, ninety two, um, mm-hmm. and there really hasn't been a modern look at it, and really, you know, they really haven't built out you know how to explore for these solid deposits within the project ground that that weren't you know showing on surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, we see this incredible potential to take what is already a world-class resource um, and expand it. Um, and, you know, th- this summer we're going to – we'll start with some drilling that will firm it up for an updated resource this year um, and then build on that towards a PEA, uh, you know, preliminary economic assessment, which would be out uh, early early to mid-next year. So a PEA early uh, – late this year, early next year. What do you – how do you see your company? Are, are I mean, I was looking over the skill sets of your management team. You certainly have some. You have an engineer in there. I think you've got some people. Besides exploration geologists, that's that's your trade. What do you see the company's uh, mandate as as being an exploration company, one that builds and finds something significant that a major would take over, or how far are you prepared to take this yourselves? Look, we'll, we'll advance it as far as we have to. Um, I, I think that with the resource there and the potential to expand it, I think that we'll pretty quickly get a bullseye on us. Um, mm-hmm. But I think with these things, it's always best practice to assume you're going to build it. Uh, not only does it does that provide an alternative for any bids, um, mm-hmm. it, it also means you take ownership of things and you're handing over a project in the best condition you can to a potential acquirer. Um, you know, if, if you're heads down on exploration and you're not managing the community or you're not managing the environment or permitting, um, yeah. a potential acquirer knows that they're buying a resource that they may struggle to turn into a mine, and that's mm-hmm. not what they want. So what we want to have is a resource that we've demonstrated, you know, step by step that we're progressing it towards a mine. So I think operating under the assumption you're going to build it is the best way uh, to get taken out. Uh, how late can you work on this project, um, can you go, I don't know, it's, it's pretty far north there. Do you have to shut down in October, November? What, how, when do you have to call it quits for the exploration? 
You could uh, operate year-round. We have an airstrip on site that you can get mm-hmm. to, um, you know, on a, on a fixed wing with, with skis over winter. Mm-hmm. But realistically, um, the major river we have to cross to get there, which is right at the community of Ross River, um, which is actually the Pelly River, interestingly, is you have to cross by barge, and that barge shuts down in um, mid-October. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't demob the camp in mid-October, you're having to wait until the river's frozen. Um, so presumably we have the opportunity to, to operate at least until mid-October without having to run into um, to issues with winter. But, but, you know, I would note that it's very cold up there, but mm-hmm. you're not dealing with an immense amount of snowfall. It is semi-arid. So you're mm-hmm. looking at about a meter and a, a meter and change of, um, of snowfall a year. Which is mm-hmm. which is not an incredible challenge to deal with. You're not getting equipment buried on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so you're optioning this from HUD Bay. Why HUD Bay? I mean, it's a good. It looks like a great project. Why would HUD Bay not move this forward themselves? They've got too many other projects in the in the works. Or, or what, how do you explain this? Well, you know, so the the two deposits were were owned separately until 2007 when HUD Bay oh, acquired okay. the Jason half. Um, they had pretty big plans for it, and they put a big camp in in 2011, which is actually the camp we'll be using. Um, and they, they did a drill program, they did some metallurgy, and they had big plans for the future when the bottom sort of fell out of the mining market in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to um, put words in their mouth because obviously I'm not privy to internal strategic discussions in Hyde Bay, but I think they've really shifted their focus to copper. Um, and so a zinc project that wouldn't ultimately feed their own zinc smelter, because uh, there's zinc smelters in Manitoba, concentrate from oh, okay. here would likely, likely go to Asia. Um, you know, I think it just became orphaned, you know, when the downturn came and the focus shifted to, to copper. Um, we were lucky to engage them quite early, and, and it took a lot of time to get them over the line. They really wanted to make sure they were handing the project to good stewards of it. Sure. Um, both who took care of the environment and community, but also who advanced it so that um, their value in the project, or in this case in our company, is maximized. Um, and, that, and that's the real heart of the deal with us, is that they'll own 15% of us fully diluted when we earn in. Okay, so they have a vested interest in seeing you succeed, that's for sure. Uh, technical details, uh, th- this is, a, a, I guess this is really a steeply dipping uh, structure, isn't it? You'll, it'll be an underground mine, obviously, I suppose, yeah. unless maybe the top part. Yeah, we, we, we assumed at this point that it's going to be entirely underground. Um, and for underground, the, the steeply diffling, the sort of vertical to sub-vertical structures actually are good um, because then you're able to mine out from underneath them and, and gravity works to your advantage, you know, whether it's stoping or, or something to that effect. Um, so the, the geometry works well for us. Um, you know, what we've seen in terms of um, ground conditions suggests that it's pretty good and that we should have good ground conditions for mining, and that's something that we need to firm up as we go. Mm-hmm. Metallurgy, um, any, any, anything that might stand in the way of a success here that you can think of? Any no, fatal no, flaws? No, no. Um, Hyde Bay did metallurgy on it in 2012, um, and uh, so that's kind of the prelim metallurgy that we have, and it's been very positive. Um, a good recoveries of, of zinc and, and lead and silver um, with the silver reporting to the lead con, which is what you want. Um, it's much more payable in lead concentrate than it is in zinc concentrate. Um, as well, um, sort of uh, l- low mid um, work index in terms of grindability, um, and then most importantly in terms of deleterious elements, 
um, you know, those things that might, uh, you know, restrict what, con- what smelter you can sell the concentrate sure. to or, or incur penalties. Um, very low. The, o- the only um, thing we're seeing above threshold for penalties is mercury uh, and very modestly above threshold. Um, everything else in the prelim metallurgy is pretty much below threshold for penalty. Um, and we also see uh, quite low iron and silica, which, is, which may actually make it attractive to smelters. Um, we think that, that, it, that based on the prelim metallurgy we've done, pretty much every smelter in the world should be able to buy our concentrate. And uh, to a lot of them, it might actually be quite attractive. All right, Brandon, just uh, with a couple of minutes left here yet, I want to ask you, uh, before we went on the show, you were mentioning that your shares are considerably undervalued vis-a-vis your peers. And whilst uh, every project is different, one needs to be aware of, of those details. Uh, you're just you're a brand new story. That's that's the first thing that comes to mind. Why this may be true, but but what are your thoughts as to why you are so undervalued relative to your peers? Well, I think you know I, I mentioned that we were talking to HUD Bay for for two years before we got this over the line, and we originally lined up our our initial investors quite early as well. Um, in the intervening time, the the mining market took off again, and the zinc market yeah. in particular. Um, but we, because HUD Bay was very honorable about maintaining terms with us, we declined to reprice our IPO, even though it really had been repriced at a fundamentally different era. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that era, our peer group went up four or five fold easily. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we just don't believe it's a good practice to move the goalposts on your backers. So sure. even though we IPO this year, it was really an IPO that was priced in early 2016. Uh, maybe even late 2015, which is, a, of course, as you know, a very different time for pricing. Um, so out of the gate, we, we almost doubled pretty much straight out of the gate. But um, And I don't blame my shareholders. A lot of them want to sell at these levels because they've, they're sitting on a quick double, right? Mm-hmm, but sure. the, the, the key thing is, is whether or not they're sitting on a quick double for, for new investors is, is whether or not there's another double there or more. Right. Uh, right. And I think if you take a look at our peer group, and take a look at a variety of valuation metrics, obviously with caveats, as you say, because every project is different in terms of viability and maturity. But we think we have a very good project. We know it's very big compared to our peers. Um, it has a very good grade compared to our peers. Um, so we think there's a lot of uplift left there. Yeah, and a lot bigger potentially, as, as we don't have time to talk about, but there's lots of exploration potential from what I can see there. Yeah. Uh, you, you have enough money in the till to take you through this year. You won't have to raise any, any more until next year. Or how, how does that go? We have enough money to um, yeah do this summer's program, uh, complete our resource update PEA, and make the balloon final balloon payment to HUD Bay, which is mm-hmm. seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, that's good. Uh, so, with some good success this year, uh, the market should come alive. If uh, our previous uh, guest is right in, in believing that we're in a new bull market for commodities, it should be it should be very good for you. I, I really look forward to keeping up with this story. Anything else you want to leave with our listeners before we uh, conclude our discussion today? No, I would encourage them to check out our website and read more about the uh, program and, and email us or, or phone us if you have any questions. I'm always happy to take that call. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Brandon, for being with us. Thanks, and a Great story. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. William Engelby will be with us uh, to talk about some geopolitical issues that uh, might affect gold and some of the other commodities we talk about on this show. So don't go away. We'll be right back with William Engdahl. No. 
Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have back a, an old friend, uh, William Engdahl. has been with us a number of times. It's been quite a while since we've had him on, and so I'm really pleased to have him back after a, tri- a, a trip to China. He has traveled to China a number of times, and we're going to ask him about his latest uh, trip over there and uh, what he's discovering about the mood of the Chinese people and what their attitude might be towards uh, the Trump administration and America in general, I, I, I suppose it's always dangerous to generalize because China is a very big place and it has lots of different kinds of people there too. But uh, we'll ask him about uh, about what uh, what he's seen and heard when he comes back. Uh, his most recent works, uh, he's written a number of books uh, that come highly recommended. And uh, you do want to keep up with his work. Uh, as best you can. So uh, thanks for joining me again, William. It's really good to have you with me. Jay, it's good to be back with you. Good to be uh, to have you with me, and I should tell the people that they should be going to uh, William Engdahl. And Engdahl is spelled, and I always misspell it. My wife always uh, always lets me know about it. It's William Engdahl, E-N-G-D-A-H-L, Engdahl. Correct. WilliamEngdahl.com. Go there, folks. There's lots of really interesting articles uh, to read. Uh, William is a world traveler, uh, but he spends a lot of time uh, in countries that are considered by, at least by our deep state, by our military-industrial complex, as our enemies. I all really believe that if we, the people, were allowed to talk to Russians, we would rather like them. If we could talk to Chinese, and we certainly do talk to a lot of Chinese, and one of my best friends, Chen Lin, is from Beijing. I don't see any reason why they should be our enemies, frankly. And uh, William comes from Texas, but he's lives in, uh, he, he lives in Germany after he's uh, got a degree, an undergraduate degree from Princeton, pretty prestigious university, 
and then an advanced degree or at least advanced studies in, in Stockholm, so in economics. And, and I just really always enjoy, William, I always enjoy your views. Um, they are refreshingly different. So thanks again for being with us. And um, I, I do want to ask you about China. What can you tell us about the mood of China towards the United States and the Trump administration based on, on your discussions with people there? I had a fascinating two-week tour. It's part of research for an upcoming book I'm working on, on the geopolitical implications of the One Belt, One Road, or the Chinese call it uh, the high-speed rail and deep water port infrastructure project that is economically linking all the land nations of Eurasia for the first time in history. And it's fascinating what's being created there. So I wanted to see with my own eyes. I'm a, I'm a hands-on touching person. I'm a, uh, my early training was as an engineer and I like to build up things and so So I like to see how. And I had a, a possibility to meet with some of the leading think tanks that are involved in advising the Beijing government on the different uh, routes and strategies of the One Belt, One Road high-speed infrastructure project <coughs> to ask them countless questions. <coughs> Excuse me. And then I wanted to see some of the key sites. So I was taken to Xi'an, a city about a thousand, if I'm remembering correctly, about a thousand kilometers west of Beijing in central China. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and uh, Xi'an, it's probably best known in the world as the site of the archaeological excavation of the terracotta warriors. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's also the traditional starting point 2,200 years ago of the ancient silk road that brought Chinese silks across land, across Eurasia, mm -hmm. through the Middle East into the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. symbolically, that is the starting point of the rail side of the new Silk Road for the Chinese. And there, in a city of 9 million people, believe me, one year ago, before my first visit to Xi'an, this was my second, one year ago, I had no idea what Xi'an was, and then I had to look it up in Google. Uh -huh. And it's a thriving city of 9 million people. 9 million people. Yeah, in the middle of China, it has a special economic zone for high-tech electronic or IT, kind of like a small Silicon Valley. Uh, and then it's home to a hub of the Silk Road rail interlink, the largest rail station in Asia was completed in five years ago in 2011. And I got a tour through that rail station. Talk about modern technology. Uh, I've never seen a Western train station as modern as this. Uh, I live in Germany. They have very nice high-speed trains, but the infrastructure is 19th century uh, still. And uh, this was fascinating to see. But it's trains, these uh, high-speed bullet trains, as the Japanese call them, mm -hmm. 
coming and going in every direction toward Mongolia in the north, toward Kazakhstan in the west and Russia, mm. uh, down the south toward Kunming and, uh, and so forth. And uh, this was really beautiful to see. Then uh, I wanted to see the, the port side of this whole project because mm -hmm. one belt wrote, the belt are a series of deep water ports. Sure. And there I was taking, after much discussion uh, with my guides, I decided to opt for Qingdao, Q-I-N-G-D-A-O. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that is a port city on the, uh, well, directly across from, from uh, South Korea. And it's by no means the largest port in China. The largest port is Shanghai. But the port in Qingdao is part of the One Belt, One Road. It has direct rail infrastructure connections with the whole uh, high-speed rail network. And it has one of the largest container ports in the world. It's the fourth largest port in China. And the container traffic annually through uh, Qingdao port is larger than Hamburg, the largest port in Germany, mm. and Antwerp combined. It's even larger, taken alone, than Rotterdam. And this is only the fourth largest port in China. And the port director showed me a, a, a beautiful kind of model of the enlargement of the port, and then I went by car to see this. And they are going to approximately double the container capacity. It's the first fully automated container port in Asia. Mm. So the Chinese are not playing around when they talk about efficiently moving real commodities in the world economy. Wall Street is very good at moving you know, paper values through derivatives and, and uh, you know, front-running computers and uh, yeah. what. But real commodities, that's, that's considered passe. And this is the heart of the difference between China and the U.S., I would say. Right. It seems like um, Wall Street is good at smoke and mirrors, kind of. And, uh, <laughs> well, and too good. China, too yeah. yeah, very good at it and, and deception. But, you know, William, I'm looking at a map here now of uh, Obar, One Belt, One Road. Okay. Uh, uh, okay, so I see there's, uh, there's mainland China. Yeah. Uh, and and then all through Russia to the north, you have w one belt economies. I guess mm -hmm. that one belt economies, which links up with China, and then you have one road economies, which are to the south. We're looking at all these Asian. I guess you got sea lanes there that connect these countries and their economies together. Yeah. But in, included in that, of course, all those Southeast Asian countries in India, stretching over into Africa to the. Eastern portion, a couple of the eastern countries, uh, northeastern Africa primarily. Yeah, uh, Djibouti, yeah. yeah. This is a, the, so what is the combined population here? I mean, this is this, this is an amazing number of people. Oh, you're talking about more than 50% of the world population. In right. The, in the Eurasian part alone, leave Western Europe out of it. Uh, just in that part alone, China, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Russia, uh, Pakistan, Iran and so forth, Turkey. Yeah, it, it, and it stretches into, uh, actually into western portions of Western Europe as well, the One Belt. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if you look, the, the 
president of China, the initiator of, of the One Belt, One Road, Xi Jinping, it's, it's his vision, and I have to credit him, he has a beautiful vision, uh, building up instead of tearing down, which we in the West seem to be very good at, yep. destroying countries but not building them up. So uh, Xi Jinping in uh, 2013 went to uh, Kazakhstan to meet with the president of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, and made a speech at a university there where he proposed what has become now the new economic Silk Road or the One Belt, One Road, because mm -hmm. China doesn't want to lock it into this overland historical Silk Road because it's much bigger than that. Now, the maps that you mostly find uh, in, in the internet, Google Maps or, or whatever, are not really that current. Mm -hmm. And I, I had the special possibility in China to see some of the most current maps. And there's mm -hmm. six corridors. The one that's most commonly seen in the West is one corridor over, over land from Xi'an through uh, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan mm -hmm. and Tehran and then Turkey and then up to Moscow and down to maybe Western Europe. Uh, if Western Europe comes to its senses and gets on board this thing. Yeah. Uh, there are six corridors. India is one of the corridors. It looks like India's uh, Prime Minister Modi is being seduced by the Trump administration to be anti-Chinese. And that's very unfortunate. But, uh, you know, India is doing some very, very unfortunate things like this uh, digitalization of, of Currency, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. But there, there, there's a dark agenda going on in India under the Modi government. <clears throat> so it will not rise or fall with India being on board or not. And there's a redundancy built into this. The Chinese are, are not uh, uh, just lightly throwing rail tracks down everywhere mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of rail tracks. They have looked, they know the cultures of, of the peoples of, of these countries. They are working on making sure the indigenous people and the governments of, of the countries understand what this is, including Mongolia, including uh, well, Iran is, is very open. They have a long history with China. And they're very sophisticated uh, people, the Iranians, in terms of history, in terms of culture, and so on. Uh, so they are fully aware, in fact, the, I would say the existence of this as a national priority for China was catalyzed by the most stupid decision, and I call it stupid, of the former Obama administration announced in, what was it, uh, 2012, the Asia pivot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Asia pivot of, of Obama was, uh, why do I, I call it the uh, November 2001, it was 2011, right. sorry. And uh, the Obama administration announced the Asia pivot foreign policy, pivoting out of the Middle East toward Asia mm -hmm. to protect and show America's presence in Asia. Mm -hmm. Now, and one of the 
components of this to quote Hillary Clinton back then when she was Secretary of State, defending freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, exactly the opposite. Yeah, well, that set alarm bells ringing in, in Beijing and the headquarters of the People's Liberation Army and the Politburo and the whole shebang because at the time they announced that, they also made public that they had adopted something in 2010 the Pentagon calls the Air-Sea Battle Doctrine. It's something that this futurologist Andrew Marshall at the Pentagon Office of Net Assessment uh, created. And it's a doctrine for military confrontation with China. Mm -hmm. And then Defense Secretary Gates spoke about the need to counter China's growing military capabilities. Well, this was mm. back in 2010. The Chinese, I can tell you, because I was in China, well, now a total of maybe 16 or 17 times since 2008. And they were not at all thinking about preparing for war with the United States. Yeah. When yeah. this happened, they said, okay. We have not so much time. We better be prepared for the worst and defend our national interests. Mm -hmm. So the freedom of the sea lanes is what these uh, landfills in the South China Sea in territory that's historically uh, claimed by China mm -hmm. and good right. It's, it's not uh, a cut and dry thing that they stole it from the Philippines or any of the other literal countries. So this was triggered by the Obama Asia pivot. Uh huh. And uh, I think, in retrospect, dear President Obama may have given a gift to the world that he never intended. And that was catalyzing what today is the One Belt, One Road, a $22 trillion series of economic infrastructure projects that are going to, if we're not so suicidal in this world that we sabotage everything and blow ourselves up, it's going to transform the possibilities of building up real economies in the entire world, including the United States. Mm -hmm. this is the Even, even yeah. it, in spite of our policies, uh, it, it may be helpful to us. Uh, I want to ask you, William, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to ask you, how does the Philippines come into play here? Because the new... The new government in the Philippines has really turned hostile towards the United States. You were saying, uh, you know, the U.S. is trying to claim that we stole the islands from the Philippines. Well, if we did, it certainly doesn't seem to bother the, the, current, uh, the, the current ruler in, in the Philippines. So what, is, what is your take about the Philippines, and why are they turning so hostile towards the United States? Rodrigo Duterte is, to my mind, far more intelligent and far more interesting person than the Western media makes him out to be. They make him out to be essentially a foul-mouthed, sailor-talking, uh, crude kind of peasant leader. Duterte is, is uh, in his personal background, I, I've watched him since he became president. He's no country bumpkin. He's a 71-year-old veteran politician. Uh, Yes, he called the American Manila ambassador a gay son of a bitch for criticizing Duterte's war on drug lords and dealers that were destroying the country and destroying the youth. But, and then he called Obama a son of a whore. <laughs> you know, whether this was factually correct or not, 
he won the hearts and, and sympathy of, of his countrymen because they're so sick of being kicked around since 1898 by mm-hmm. American brutality as a, you know, a dirt kind of uh, vassal state of, of United States imperialism. Because since uh, the father of Douglas MacArthur was the military dictator of the Philippines after 1898, that's been kind of the history of the Philippines. So he is also interesting because he's the first Mindanoan to become president of the Philippines. He's ethnically Visayan descent. And the Visayans in Mindanao and the rest of the Philippines led a war of independence against Spanish occupation in 1896. Mm -hmm. That was what led the Spanish to give up the island. But instead, the United States did a, a double cross they posed as a supporter of the Visayan independence war and then betrayed them and signed a treaty with Spain in 1898 to get Cuba and the Philippines as U.S. possessions. So this, this is the history of, uh, you know, of, of the background of, of Duterte. So he's much more shrewd than, than uh, the Western press takes him to be. And he also is very well aware that uh, China is not the enemy of the Philippines, nor is Russia. But the United States is surely not the friend. Mm-hmm. And that's that's, that's, the, that, that's their take. And, and so uh, the Philippines then are becoming perhaps an ally of China in a, in a way. And so that is very clear as I look at the map, you know, that the sea lanes, which the South Sea, the South China Sea, which the United States has not been willing to allow China. I mean, I can imagine if China come into the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. Well, they're, they're, in the, they're in the Panama Canal. The Chinese are big time. That's true. <laughs> and that is true. Yeah. Well, well, William, let me ask you, yeah. with, with just a couple of minutes left here now, uh, yep. uh, the... The implications for the dollar, uh, the dollar, we've had this petrodollar, which was sort of put in place by Kissinger when Nixon was in and when we went off the gold yeah, standard. Yeah, yeah. Now, these countries, especially China and Russia, uh, have been accumulating huge amounts of gold and they've been, you know, less and less using the dollar for international trade, using their own currencies. And I think in some cases, gold. Do you see gold playing a, a role perhaps uh, in a in their trading system and of the OBAR countries? Gold as a, as a standard of trust. Uh-huh. And then the bilateral trade in renminbi and Russian ruble and the Tehran currencies and so forth instead of the dollar. And this is very, very advanced. I was told this in Beijing. This is how they see it. They see the dollar is used as a tool to loot countries and their currency they view as a tool to trade. Uh-huh. So it's a big difference. All right, and and underneath that is the is gold. I mean, those countries. Uh, yeah. I mean, I well, guess uh, what's you a, said a, it, in, Russia and China are the biggest accumulators in central bank gold. And I wonder, as I hear you saying, India seems to be moving towards the uh, towards the the West. They are making gold more difficult for ownership there and trying to digitalize to take the currency away from people and giving taking their freedoms away, essentially, their yeah. economic freedoms. It's really strange, isn't it, William? And we're out of time now, unfortunately. But that the the West, which was supposed to be 
the purveyor of freedom and liberty is turning the opposite, it seems, and the Eastern countries in some ways looking like more of what our traditional values were in some ways. You could say that, I think, and, and it's very interesting how this is developing. Well, I want to tell everybody to uh, be sure to check into uh, William William's website. Uh, it's William, let me just make sure, it's William Engdahl, E-N-G-D-A-H-L.com. Lots of great articles there. I mean, uh, Will Trumpnomics Bankrupt America? Uh, the Donald Meets uh, Sun Chu and is, uh, is Founding Wanting. Uh, you know, Jay, lots of can I say one thing? Uh, yeah, please, quickly. I hope you go to it. Uh, if they go to the website, they will get an offer, a pop-up window, for a free subscription newsletter every couple of weeks that I put out well, good. for the content of my books and, and uh, geopolitical pieces. Excellent. And all you have to do is, is sign up for that and, and you're on board. And that... Uh, you know, that gives you something that uh, is, is not in the online website. Well, that's right. It, it's, it's refreshingly different from what you're going to hear in the mainstream. And, and it's, it's great news. It's great, I think, great factual stuff there, William. Thank you so much for being with us again. Always a pleasure to have you. Folks, next week uh, I'm going to be talking to, well, actually, next week's 4th of July. There will be a repeat show. Uh, of a previous show and then we're going to be talking in the following week with uh, blogger Chris Hamilton and Peter Talman of Klondike Gold. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.